0: Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court.
1: Good morning, everyone. Our next case is Miller versus Carolina Coast Emergency Physicians et al., and we will hear from the appellant.
2: Please, the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices. My name is Maria Wood, and I have the honor of being here today on behalf of the defendant appellant, Harnett Health Systems, doing business as, Be- as Betsy Johnson Regional Hospital. At this time, I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. I am here today on behalf of Harnett Health requesting that this court restore to Rule 9j its vital gatekeeping function intended by the legislature when it enacted the statute and to reverse the trial court's denial of Harnett Health's Rule 9j motion to dismiss. I am also here today to explain why the Court of Appeals improperly improperly applied a de novo standard of review to the trial court's exclusion of an expert plaintiff's expert witness, Dr. Gary Harris, when it should have applied the abuse of discretion standard, which would have resulted in an affirmation of the disqualification of this expert. I'll briefly review several of the, the facts pertinent to these issues. Almost seven years ago, we deposed plaintiff's sole Rule 9 J expert, Dr. Robert Lair. In the course of the deposition, the defendants asked Dr. Lair, as is customary in these depositions, to provide all his opinions as to the various defendants who were named, named in this case. Dr. Lair testified that at no point had he formed any criticisms of the defendant, Harnett Health Systems. He also testified at his deposition that he had previously that he had shared all these opinions that he gave on that day with plaintiffs' counsel during a during telephone conversations prior to the lawsuit being filed. In other words, Dr. Lair. Confirmed at his deposition that prior to the filing of the lawsuit, he advised plaintiff's counsel that he only held opinions as to the co defendant. And he thereby confirmed he had never had any criticisms of Harnett Health. Following this deposition, we never heard from Dr. Lair again, and the defendant, Harnett Health, filed a Rule 9J motion to dismiss on the basis that under Rule 9j, Dr. Lair had never been willing to testify, which is one of the, requ- one of the two requirements of, of, of Rule 9j. Rule 9j has two distinct requirements. One requirement is that an, an expert witness be willing to testify against the defendant. The second requirement by the plain language of Rule 9J is that that expert be reasonably expected to qualify under Rule 702 of the North Carolina Rules of Evidence. Our motion, our Rule 9J motion to dismiss was was premised only on the willingness to testify component, not on the reasonable expectation of qualification. Excuse me our, our rule 9j motion was premised primarily on the willingness to testify component and also Secondarily on the expectation to qualify at, at issue today is the willingness to testify component However the trial court entered an order denying our rule 9j motion to dismiss on the basis that uh, and in it's fine making a finding of fact that the plaintiff's attorney had reasonably expected that the expert would be willing to testify against Harnett Health. Uh, Under the language of Rule 9J, that is not the standard. The standard under Rule 9J is that they are willing to testify and the the reasonable expectation component applies to the expectation of qualifying under Rule 702 um, to testify. There are, as I've mentioned, there are two very distinct requirements of Rule 9-J. One is a willingness to testify. The other requirement is an expectation that, that the expert will qualify. In the Moore case, Moore versus Proper, which was a Supreme Court case before this court in 2012 the court analyzed the standard as, in term, as what the attorney knew or should have known at the time he filed the complaint. Now, Moore versus Proper was a um, case involving the Rule 702 analysis, but in that case, the, the holding as to an evaluation of Rule 9J it, it, it Implicated both both components that when evaluating an attorney's compliance with Rule 9J prior to filing a lawsuit, what is relevant is what what was known or what should have been known by by was the it,
0: attorney. Did, did it say, was it reasonably should have known or just should have known?
2: What the attorney n- n- knew or should have known was the language. Okay. Um, in this case, we now know that Dr. Lair never was willing to testify. Following his deposition, the plaintiff's attorney submitted his own affidavit in which he talked about a telephone conversation that he had had with Dr. Lair prior to the filing of the lawsuit and contended in that affidavit that following that conversation he reasonably believed that Dr. Lair would testify against Harnett Health. Based on Dr. Lair's deposition testimony, we now know that that during that telephone conversation, Dr. Lair never said that and never committed to testify against Harnett Health in that telephone conversation. And on that basis, the plaintiff's attorney should have known at that time that he was not willing to testify as an expert witness.
0: If I, if I understand your colleague's brief and, of course, telling me that I don't understand it correctly is a, is a, is a perfectly appropriate answer. Uh, my, if I read their brief correctly, they say that there is an affidavit that, that uh, Dr. Lehrer signed that said it has a copy of the complaint attached and that states I am willing to Testify that these, the defendants, not specifying individual defendants, but just the defendants, uh, fail to comply with the standard of care as alleged in the complaint. Is is is, is 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 that an accurate description of a document in the record?
2: That it, there is an affidavit from Dr. Lair.
0: It said, does it say what I just? Summarized? It does. Okay.
2: That. Oh. That affidavit was obtained prior to the deposition of Dr. Lair. As as Your Honor stated, the affidavit refers generally to defendants. There are three defendants in this case. There is a co-defendant physician, his medical practice, which would comprise or make the defendants plural at that point, and then there is also Harnett Health. Which, when we which, deposed at least, which, which at
0: least, as I understood, it was sued on a theory first of all that Dr. Raina or Rana, depending on how you pronounce his name, <clears throat> was a was a essentially an agent of the uh, uh, hospital, and that that's not before us today.
2: That's not bef- that's not before the so court. The only
0: now. thing that's before us today is allegedly negligent conduct by the nursing staff. Yes, right?
2: your honor. Okay. And and in in his, we received this affidavit from Dr. Lair um, prior to the deposition in which it very generally referred to him being critical of the defendants. At the deposition, defense counsel went through a series of questioning with Dr. Lair to confirm what does, you know, who, who are you critical of? Who are these defendants? And he confirmed in his deposition that he was critical of the co-defendant, and thereby the co-defendant's practice, and that he had never been critical of Harnett Health. There was also
0: another aspect. Aff- and again, just to be real precise, when you say he was not critical of Harnett Health, he was not critical of the care provided by the nursing staff.
2: My apologies, Your Honor, yes. No,
0: no need to apologize, I've just found if we don't keep our terms fairly well parsed, we sometimes get confused. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> At least
0: I do. So.
2: Um, th- it, it, yes. Um, and, and that's exactly the situation. He, he confirmed that he had never had any opinions and that he had never told plaintiff's counsel he had any opinions. So one, he was not willing, and two, he should, the plaintiff's attorney should have known this expert was not willing to, to testify against Harnett Health. In in. In arguing at, at the Rule 9j motion to dismiss hearing that there was some, that the reasonable expectation standard should govern the willingness component of, of Rule 9j, it, Plans Council seemed to make an argument involving that there's a good faith exception. If I use good faith in making sure that my expert is, is willing to testify, then I have satisfied um, Rule 9-J. In the Moore versus Proper case, it, it is also stated in that case that there is no good, good faith um, compliance e- exception in evaluating Rule 9-J. It is what the attorney knew or should have known at the time he filed the complaint. There are not many, much, there's not very much authority on this issue involving Rule 9J and the interpretation of the willingness component, whereas there is precedent um, interpreting the reasonable expectation to qualify. In in terms of the willingness component, there's simply not a lot of precedent, which makes this issue before the court today even more important. Um, there is a, a case that occurred that was decided in 2020 and is cited in both briefs, um, which is the Preston versus Mavahead decision. And in that case, it, it evaluated both willingness and reasonable expectation. And in that case, it was determined that this court determined that that expert was indeed willing, to testify against the defendant. Um, in that case, though, the facts are very different from, from this particular case. In, in that case, the proffered expert who was a cardiologist did have criticisms of, the, of one of the defendant physicians, but those criticisms were premised on the plaintiff also retaining a physician in another specialty in nuclear cardiologist, um, who to, to also form the foundation of his opinions in, in which case he would be willing to testify and would be critical. Um, in that case, that expert gave all these opinions against this physician in his deposition, and he also submitted three affidavits in which he explained these criticisms based on that situation and those facts this court determined that prior to the filing of the lawsuit, that expert witness was willing to testify against the defendant. The situation that we have here today is is very different. At at no place in in the record is there any evidence other than, is there any evidence that this particular expert, Dr. Lair, was ever willing to testify against Harnett Health. the only document in the file or in the, in the record on appeal that, that could potentially constitute any sort of evidence would be an affidavit from the plaintiff signed by the plaintiff's attorney himself. We do not have anything in the record in which Dr. Lair says or avails or confirms that he has any opinions or that he ever had any opinions.
0: Well, just to, un- to understand the, your view of the standard again correctly i'm going to give you a ridiculous hypothetical and let me see how far your position goes let, let's assume for purposes of discussion that dr Lair had reached in his own mind subjectively the conclusion that he could not make any adverse comment about the quality of care provided by the nursing staff so his actual opinion was that there was no uh, failure to comply with the standard of care On the other hand, he tells plaintiff's counsel that he does, in fact, believe that there was a deficiency in the performance of the nursing staff, even though he didn't actually believe that.
3: Uh
0: Uh, The plaintiff relies upon that and then files a complaint. Uh, Is that complaint subject to dismissal on the basis of Rule 9J based upon the fact that his actual opinion, contrary to what he communicated to the plaintiff's counsel? was that there was no negligence that that. And I agree that's a strange hypothetical but I mean but if, if, if the only standard is what the person actually believed where are we
2: well it's, it's in addition to what they actually believed it's it's what they knew or should have known if that expert told the plaintiff's attorney before the plaintiff's attorney filed the lawsuit that he believed there was a deviation in the standard of care, then there's no way that that attorney could have known or should have known anything else. So, I think in that case, he wouldn't have been, the should have known component of that would come into play.
0: So, we do have to look at at least the reasonableness of what the attorney knew.
2: Based on what he could have known or should have known. Okay.
0: All right. So yes, it's not know. an absolute. What was the subjective opinion of the expert at the time of the Rule 9J certification? It goes be does go beyond that.
2: It, it does. Okay. And, and 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 we we urge in this case that Mr. That that the plaintiff's attorney should have known that that he was not critical, especially given that. He testified about this, that telephone conversation in his deposition.
4: But isn't there a, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please
3: I was just going to ask a real quick question. We do look at all of what the plaintiff's attorney knew and believed at the time of the filing of the complaint, which was before the deposition.
4: Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that. Yes. Yes. And my question was, is, is, isn't there a, or is there a factual, dispute here between what was said in that telephone conversation, that the attorney is saying one thing and the doctor is saying something different?
2: Yes. Um, only to the extent the attorney is saying that based on that conversation, he, 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 he did not detail the conversation in his affidavit, but that attorney is saying, I understood that he would testify against Harnett Health.
4: And, if and- if, if there is a factual dispute and the trial court resolved that, don't, aren't we bound by the trial court's resolution of that factual dis-
2: determination? I, I don't believe so in this context. Um, this, we are here under De Novo standard of review. And based on what is in the record, and, and it's not just what he knew, um, but based on what, we ne- what has come out in discovery, could not have, he, he should have known that this expert was, that this expert was not willing. And in addition, that is that is information coming from the plaintiff's attorney. There is nothing in the record from this expert himself as to ever having any criticisms um, against Harnett Health. And, and in, in the cases interpreting Rule 9J and how to evaluate compliance with Rule 9J. We're, we're obviously not, we are not here on a facial compliance issue, but the cases also provide that even though compliance is judged at the time of the filing of the lawsuit, if subsequent discovery reveals that an individual was either was not qualified under Rule 9J, either because they were not willing or they were not reasonably expected to to qualify. If, if that's rev- shown by subsequent discovery, a Rule 9J motion uh, granting a Rule 9J motion would still be appropriate, which is exactly the circumstance that we believe we have in in, in this case under the plain language of Rule 9J.
3: Let me ask a follow up on that. I want to make sure I understood what you said. Um, I think Justice Earls was asking you about the fi- findings of fact in the trial court, about what the plaintiff's attorney knew. And I think you indicated that our review of that is de novo. Did, is that what you intended to say? That we review the findings of fact of the trial court de novo? The, the decision of the trial court the, the under de novo standard. The conclusion of law? Yes, Your Honor. Ultimately, it, but not necessarily the findings of fact. I,
2: I don't believe so. I, I do want to point out that with respect to the findings of fact, that is one of the issues with the trial court's order and its decision in this case because, as I discussed earlier, there is no reasonable expectation prong in the language, plain language of Rule 9j itself to that, that first that, that willingness component of it. But in its order, in the findings of fact, the trial court it indica- it's the, found as fact that the plaintiff's attorney reasonably expected that Mr. That, that, this, that Dr. Lehrer, the Dr. Lair, the expert, would would be was willing to testify, and that that is incorrect per the language of Rule 9J. It's not reasonable expectation that they are willing. It's reasonable expectation as to the other prong.
3: You're talking about interpreting the language of the statute of the rule, right. yes, Your Honor. Okay, but <coughs> whatever that interpretation is, um, you would you would look at whatever the indications are of what the plaintiff's attorney knew to determine what he reasonably
2: knew. Under and the case law uses the words in in in, 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 interpreting these, these case, in evaluating these cases. The, the phrase is what they knew or should have known. Okay. And t- turning to the second issue b- before this court today, um, involving Rule Seven Hundred Two, um, we we believe that the Court of Appeals improperly used. The de novo standard of review, as opposed to the abuse of discretion um, um, standard, which generally does apply in situations involving exclusions of expert witnesses. Um, the, the specific issue involves the plaintiff's other expert in the case, Dr. Gary Harris, and in, at the trial court level, the so, defendants. So,
0: so again, to make sure I understand what is and isn't before us, uh, the court of appeal is ruling with respect to Dr. Lehrer on the exclusion of his testimony. Is not before us. We're only looking at Dr. Harris.
2: Yes, that's the 702. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, the, the, the general rule is exclusion of experts is 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 evaluated by, by an appellate court using an abusive discretion standard. Um, and the, the general rule under the Briley versus Faribault case is a trial court abuses its discretion only when the ruling is manifest manifestly unsupported by reason or one so arbitrary that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision.
0: Hi- hypothetically, let's say we had a discretionary decision that the trial court made and did so on the basis of a set of facts that had no support in the evidentiary record. And I'm not saying that's what we had here or not, We just assuming that we had a discretionary determination based on a factual determination that just didn't have any record support, would that be an abuse of discretion?
2: In, in that situation, which is very different from the situation in front of the court today, it, it, it seems that it would.
4: Okay, thank
2: um, you. But in, in this particular, and, and it's, it, it goes a step farther in our case because the Court of Appeals, it, it recited, in the opinion, the court recited both standards and then proceeded to, it appears that it proceeded to use, to apply a de novo review um, of the evidence that was presented in front, in front of the trial court and reach its own its own conclusion.
0: Are, are you making this argument as to both Mr. Dr. Lehrer and Dr. Harris or just to Dr. Harris? Just to Dr. Harris. Why okay.
2: um, well, and- wouldn't
0: de novo review be appropriate, however, if the trial court felt as though, oh, I'm sorry, if the court of appeals felt as though uh, there had been a wrongful utilization of the law in terms of the interpretation by the trial court, isn't that what de novo review is for? Which is, if there are mistakes of law,
2: if, if yes, Your Honor, if, if there's a mistake of law, and but in this case, it was simply applying the facts to the requirements of Rule 702 and reaching and and reaching a conclusion that the trial court erred in in excluding Dr. Harris, um, some of the evidence that the Court of Appeals examined um, when it re- essentially reevaluated whether Dr. Harris should have been excluded under Rule 702. Included reviewing the, the data and the information that Dr. Harris had reviewed about the community and the hospital from the relevant time period, which was 2010. Um, reviewing evidence in which, that was before the court in the record going towards Dr. Harris's familiarity with the relevant community, the applicable community, and reviewing medical records and information that Dr. Harris had reviewed in reaching his opinions, and then essentially taking its review of that information that was in front of the trial court and weighing the sufficiency of the evidence and, and substituting its judgment for what happened at the trial court level.
0: I don't want to cut into your time.
2: <laughs> um,
1: Counsel, you are within your rebuttal time.
2: I, I am. Um, I will briefly conclude. Um, but, but for this reason, we, we urge, for these reasons, we urge the court, this court, um, to find that the Court of Appeals use the incorrect standard of review in this case. Um, and reached, improperly reached its own conclusion, um, and that it, it should not have reversed the trial court's order um, excluding Dr. Harris. And, and again, we also respectfully request that, that this court um, conclude that the trial court erred in denying our motion to dis- Harnett Health's motion to dismiss under Rule 9J, um, and, and reverse that, that order as well. Thank you.
1: Thank you, counsel. You hear from the appellee.
5: May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the North Carolina Supreme Court. My name is Patricia Shields. I am appellate counsel for um, plaintiff-appellee Charlotte Pope Miller. Is the administrator of the estate of John Larry Miller. At the outset, I would like to extend the apologies of trial counsel Brenton Adams for his inability to be here. He started trial last Monday in McDowell County, and much to his surprise, he is still there. Because we had planned on me arguing all along, the trial judge was not inclined to recess the case for the day, and so I am here on behalf of the plaintiff myself. There are two issues before this Court on this appeal. First, whether Harnett-Helt's motion to dismiss under Rule 9 j was properly denied. And the answer to that, Your Honors, is simply yes, and that is because the plaintiff and her counsel reasonably believed that her certifying expert was willing to testify as to a violation of the applicable standard of care. The second question is whether the Court of Appeals applied the correct standard of review in reversing the exclusion of the trial expert, Dr. Harris. Again, the answer to that question is yes. The Court of Appeals stated and did apply the abuse of discretion standard, but this is of no consequence on this appeal. This is not one of the close cases that this case is, court has been called on to consider in recent years, and under either standard of review, reversal was appropriate. With regard to Rule 9J, this court has been very, very clear in many opinions, more versus proper. Vaughn versus Mashburn, Preston versus Movahead, and others, that the purpose of Rule 9J is to serve as a gatekeeper. It is designed to prevent the filing of frivolous medical malpractice actions by requiring expert review before a complaint is filed. It serves this function by preventing a filing where a plaintiff is unwilling is, cannot find an expert who is willing to testify as to a violation of an applicable standard of care. This gatekeeping function was was performed here. This is not a frivolous medical malpractice action. The expert testimony is that Dr. Rana, Harnett-Health's alleged agent, violated the applicable standard of care, and also that Harnett-Health's nurses violated the applicable standard of care. I will also talk about this court's prior opinion and more. This is the seminal case on the standards under Rule 9 j this court held that Rule 9J is a preliminary qualifier designed to control pleadings rather than to be used as a mechanism for excluding expert testimony. The court further held, as has been discussed this morning, that compliance and noncompliance is judged at the time of filing. And to the extent that there are reasonable disputes or ambiguities about the um, conclusion that the Expert would testify. The court draws all reasonable inferences in favor of the non-movement. This court held that with regard to the expectation that the um, witness would qualify under Rule 702 and more. And in Preston versus Movahead, this court held that all of the standards on more apply equally to the willingness to testify. Now, in this case. As you've heard, well, the if, Rule 9-J, if, 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 if I understood yes, Ms.
0: Ms. Wood's argument, and she's got a little bit of rebuttal time left to tell me that I didn't understand it correctly, uh, she's saying, in effect, that, that any belief that your client may have had that Dr. Lehrer would testify against the nursing staff was not reasonable, and at least if I understood her correctly, it was because there was no Sort of defendant by defendant inquiry, uh, with respect to his willingness to testify against those folks. Again, if I've misapprehended her argument, I, she should correct me. But assuming I've got it, well, first of all, is that your understanding of her argument?
5: That's my understanding as well, Your Honor. Why?
0: Why is it not meritorious?
5: Well, Your Honor, if if you look to the record, the first the affidavit that was signed by Dr. Lair. There's been um, argument to this court that there's no mention in that affidavit of Harnett Health directly, and that is actually a misreading of the record. This affidavit was signed before um, the the deposition, and in this affidavit, there's a number, the doctor lists the documents that he's reviewed, and he says this under oath. I have examined all medical records pertaining to the negligence of the defendants Carolina Coast Emergency Physicians, LLC, Harnett Health Systems, Inc., DBA, Betsy Johnson Hospital, and Dr. Ahmad S. Rana. He defines what defendants means at the beginning of this affidavit. And he goes on to say that, in my opinion, I I reviewed these records, and before the first complaint in this action was filed in 2011, I held the opinion that the defendants violated the applicable standard of care, and I was willing to come to North Carolina and testify that the defendants violated the applicable standard of care. He describes the telephone conversation that he had with Mr. Adams and says, "I told him in September of 2011, before the complaint was filed, that I that I believe there were um, violations of the standard of care by the defendants, and I was willing to come to North Carolina and so testify." And I get again formed that opinion before the second complaint was filed. I reviewed the affidavits, the information again, and was willing to come and testify before the second complaint was filed. And as I've mentioned, he specifically defines defendants to include Hornet Health Systems. So he did testify in his affidavit that he was willing to testify to that, and most importantly, he testified that I told the plaintiff's attorney that. In, um, so, so by this affidavit, Dr. Lair, Adopted, And as has been pointed out, the complaints were attached to the affidavit. He adopted, he embraced the allegations of the complaint, represented to the plaintiff, represented to the defendants, represented to the court, that he had opinions that each of these defendants, including Arnett Health, violated the applicable standard of care, and he was willing to testify to that. This is this is what the plaintiff's attorney had to rely on at the time, and in Mr. A- Mr. Adams' affidavit, he recounts the same conversation that before the first complaint was filed, he had this conversation with with this not with the 9J expert. And your honor, applying that willingness and the reasonable belief standard makes sense in, in the requirements under Rule 9J. Is you're asking the plaintiff's attorney to do two things. Certify that that expert, um, that you reasonably believed that that expert will qualify as an expert. And second, that that expert is willing to testify. Those issues will be addressed sometimes years later. Maybe one day a Superior Court judge concludes (coughs) that this, this expert does not in fact qualify under Rule 702. Maybe the expert changes his mind, as the Court of Appeals pointed out here. There is no evidence in the record, and there isn't, that if Dr. Lair changed his mind, if he had reservations, that he ever told the plaintiff's counsel this, and this gets down to what the standard is in Moore versus Proper. You know, th- this is this is an, a unique filing and pleading requirement only for medical malpractice plaintiffs. We are asking more of them than we do in any other kind of case in this state, and. Because all the plaintiff's attorney can do is exercise reasonable diligence. And that's what the Superior Court found. In fact, Your Honors, if you look at the, the, um, the hearing transcript, is attached as an appendix to, the, um, to Harnett-Helt's brief to, new brief to this court. And the court analyzes this case under Moore and concludes and finds that the plaintiff's attorney believed, reasonably believed, that based on the information that the court was provided, that this expert was willing to testify as to a violation of the standard of care and that he was certainly surprised by what happened in the deposition, but that the decision in front of the court was the reasonable belief at the time the complaint was filed and not by any subsequent surprises. So the Superior Court properly applied the standard of review, the Court of Appeals properly affirmed Based on all of the decisions of this court concerning the application of Rule 9J.
1: So, is it your position that the reasonably uh, belief language applies to both prongs or just the first prong?
5: To both prongs, Your Honor. To both prongs. That is how I understand this court's decision in Preston versus Movahead, or Movahead, that um, that the same standards apply to both of those prongs. And as i mentioned, and, and that makes sense.
1: Is there a particular language in Preston that leads you to that belief?
5: Um, Your Honor, let me. Your Honor, on this court, throughout the majority opinion, talks in terms of the, of the reasonable expectations of the attorney at the time the complaint is filed. And and if I'm not mistaken, Your Honor, and I can't pull it up right at the moment, but my recollection is that is how Your Honor, I believe Your Honor filed a dissent in that particular case and interpreted the majority's opinion as talking about the reasonable belief of the um, attorney at the time. And again, because, this makes sense, because as this court held in more. The, the purpose behind this is not to ultimately decide whether or not this witness will be qualified, whether the jury will hear from this witness at all. The question is, is does the plaintiff have a reasonable belief that there is an expert witness who has passed off on this, who has said, yes, I found a violation of the standard of care. and? Um, And yes, I find a violation of the standard of care, and yes, I'm willing to testify. And again, because this is a unique requirement, that standard is is appropriate here. And if, and I'm certainly happy to answer any, well, I would like to mention, just briefly, as we've mentioned in our brief, in this case, that issue is, is, is basically academic because there is certainly no question that Dr. Allaire was willing to testify as to Dr. Rana's, or Rana's um, violation of the applicable standard of care. And the plaintiff has alleged that um, Dr. Rana was the apparent agent of Harnett Health. That issue is not before this court. Now,
0: now if, if- if I understand Ms. Wood's argument again, and she gets a further chance to correct me if I'm mis- misunderstanding this, too, I mean, I understood her co- answers to some of my questions to be that her argument was directed solely toward your allegations with respect to the nursing staff, not with respect to the allegations that Dr. Rana was a apparent agent of Harned uh, of Health.
5: I, I, under, I understood that argument, that to be her argument as well. Your Honor, and in fact, in the reply brief, there's an argument that that was the basis of the mo- motion to dismiss to the Superior Court, and in fact, if you, Your Honors will look at the, the, the motion itself, Harnett Health sought dismissal of all claims alleged against it, but based on the failure to have a 9-J expert, and in fact, because of these alternative allegations, of apparent agency of Dr. Rana there is a good faith basis for a 9j certification it does pass muster under rule 9j because of this alternative theory can i ask you
4: a question to make sure i understand something i think you said earlier on this factual question of what the attorney knew about the expert's willingness to testify your position is and i, I I think based on Preston and other cases, that in fact, that, that that is a fact to be taken in the light most favorable to you, rather than a factual finding that's owed deference.
5: That, that's correct, Your Honor, that, that's correct. And that's, that's what Moore holds and that's what Preston holds, is that, it, that you look in favor of the non-movement. And if I could, I, I I'll go ahead and move on to the um, issue of the exclusion of Dr. Harris. This court has been very clear that, in in general, that the exclusion of expert testimony is reviewed, is addressed to the discretion of the trial court, and it is reviewed for abuse of discretion. Now, when that exclusion concerns an error of law, this court has articulated the standard in two different ways. An error of law is an abuse of discretion, And also, errors of law or legal issues are reviewed by the court de novo because it is a question of law. And I believe in De Silva, in the De Silva case, in the second footnote, the court points out that you essentially get to the same place when when, when there's an error of law. Now, in this case, the trial court excluded um, Dr. Harris on two bases. One, the court concludes that Dr. Harris did not review the plaintiff's handwritten notes, certain EMT records or other certain medical records before forming his opinions, and therefore he is unqualified under Rule 702A to render opinion in this case. Second, that because Dr. Harris had not sufficiently demonstrated through his depositions or affidavits that he's familiar with the local standards at the time of this incident, as required by GS 90-21.12, he is not qualified. And the Court of Appeals analyzed each of these two conclusions separately. I'll start with um, familiarity with the community. Your Honors, in the record, the record shows that Dr. Harris had substantial information that formed the basis for his opinion that he was familiar with the medical community. And a lot of this information came from the extensive information that he had um, received on Betsy Johnson, about Betsy Johnson Memorial Hospital and its renewal application. And I would like here to point out one omission that I wish we had put in our brief about that renewal application. The 2010 renewal application was attached to his affidavit. In his deposition, Dr. Harris testified that he had also reviewed the 2009 and 2011 renewal applications for Betsy Johnson Memorial Hospital. So he had that extensive amount of information for a three-year period, and this is on page 10 of the first volume of his deposition. Now this was, the the 2010 renewal was attached to his affidavit, Dr. Um, Harris brought all three applications to his deposition pursuant to the subpoena ducus tecum and asked counsel do you want me to give these to you to mark as an exhibit and the court reporter says would you like to mark these as an exhibit and defense counsel says we'll get back to that later and then ultimately those three did not get attached but they were that was information that dr harris looked at now as your honors has seen in the record this this application has an enormous amount of information. It tells you that Betsy Johnson is a not-for-profit hospital, that is managed by Wake Med. It has data on the numbers of missions, discharges, the daily census, the population served, accreditation, the kind of equipment with regard to MRIs and things of that nature. It, it tells you how many patients are self-paid, how many are paid by Medicaid, how many are paid, by, paid for care by private insurance the number of beds, the number of operating rooms, and so Dr. Harris had this information for this um, 10-year period. And he testified in his affidavit that the community that I practiced in in 2010 was similar to Dunn and the hospital that I practiced in was similar to Betsy Johnson Memorial Hospital. I have, he also testified, I have colleagues that practice in similar communities and in similar hospitals, and therefore I'm, I am um, familiar with the standard of care.
0: Well, let me, let me, and this may be a very fine line that it doesn't make sense to parse, and if that's the answer to my question, just tell me. But is your argument that what the Court of Appeals did was find that there was not sufficient evidence from which the trial court could have determined, quote, because Dr. Harris is not sufficiently demonstrated through his depositions or affidavits that he's familiar with local standards, or is the Court of Appeals doing something else?
5: I think that's the Court of Appeals reasoning. Frankly, I think, Your Honor. The the former. The the first, yes, Your Honor. I think what the Court of Appeals did is what it said, which is analyze the prior opinion in the Pitts versus Nash County case. That is a case that the Court of Appeals reversed, found abuse of discretion on the exclusion of of an expert. This Court affirmed that decision per curiam. In that case, if you look at that decision, this expert had substantially more information. And and a court of appeals here doesn't have a lot of information based on about the trial court's ruling. There are no findings about what the deficiencies supposedly were, Um, there's just nothing in the order that says. Now, what's been argued to this court in Harnett Health's brief, is that this expert had demographic information from the 2013 to 2015 time period. Well, that's true. There were printouts that had information from 2010 to 2015. And, you know, if what the superior court concluded is that be- that because you also had this information, you are disqualified from testifying. If that's the reasoning, and it may well be, because the, the, the one sentence says, because you're not familiar with the standard of care, you're not qualified under 90-21.12, if that was the trial court's reasoning, that, that would be a misinterpretation of 90-20.12, because um, there, there's, there's no case that I've been able to find. that holds that you you cannot include additional information and see additional information. The issue, as pointed out in Pitts and many other cases, is whether or not there is sufficient familiarity with the standard of care. And I'd like to talk for a minute about this court's fascinating decision in the Crocker versus Rodling case. Because I think it, it sort of tees up this issue very nicely and very clearly. In Crocker, as your honors will remember, a newborn died and a, as a result of alleged um, birth-related defects in, in Goldsboro, North Carolina. The contention was that the, ex, that the defendant should have done what's called a Zanvenelli move, maneuver at the time of de- delivery. The record shows that this maneuver had been rarely done, a hundred times worldwide in an 11-year period. The plaintiff had an expert from Phoenix, and at his deposition, He testified that he had some familiarity with Goldsboro, the location of the population, and some with the hospital. And afterwards, he provided an affidavit that said that he had, in, in a summary way, that he had reviewed information, was familiar with the population of Goldsboro and the level of care at the facilities, and that he was familiar with the prevailing standard of care, and explained what his contention was on that violation. This court held that the exclusion was improper. And the majority opinion, as I read the opinions and putting them together, what what is the majority opinion is that gaps in expert testimony and discovery depositions are not the basis for summary judgment and affidavits must be considered like other testimony and that admissibility is on an expert opinion in a medical malpractice case is decided under the state versus good standard. Justice Hudson, in the opinion that Your Honor wrote, concluded that this information that was in the record showed sufficient familiarity with the same or similar community. And summary judgment should be reversed. Justice Martin concluded that this was a close case. The dissent that was offered by Chief Justice Newby disagreed. And the the dissent expressed concern with the bald assertions in the affidavit that I am familiar with with Goldsboro and the standard of care. This is not that case. This is not that case. There's extensive information in his affidavit and in the deposition on cross-examination, having not been asked much information about his familiarity with standard of care over an objection of defense counsel, the, the witness did explain how he was familiar with the applicable standard of care. In addition, the dissent had problems with considering affidavits supplied after a deposition coequally with deposition testimony. Mr. Adams, trial counsel here, learned the lesson from that, from that dissent. This affidavit was provided in advance of the deposition. It was made an exhibit to the deposition. This was a case where trial counsel endeavored mightily to make sure that his expert was familiar with the applicable standard of care and that everybody had notice of the reason so that he was not facing the situation that came up in the Crocker case. For that reason, reversal here was appropriate. And again, for that reason, this be, is not be, a close,
0: befo- close. Before we move on any further, Sorry. and if I'm interrupting the logical flow of your argument that you were going to get to this in a minute, uh, I've already interrupted you, so let's go ahead and, and do it. <laughs> the other ground upon which Dr. Harris's testimony was excluded by the trial court, at least as I read the, the two orders were that, quote, Dr. Harris did not review the plaintiff's handwritten notes, certain EMT records, or other certain other prior medical records before forming his opinions in his case. That seems to be the other reason.
5: Yes, Your Honor. Court
0: of Appeals, at least as I understood its opinion, and if you understand it differently, please tell me, uh, held that that was not a valid basis for excluding his testimony because experts were not required to review that sort of information uh, uh, prior to forming an admissible opinion. Am I misreading the uh, Court of Appeals opinion? How do you understand?
5: The way I understand the opinion, Your Honor, is what the Court of Appeals concluded from the trial court's order is that the trial court believed that because of these documents, because the, the widow's handwritten notes and certain EMT records, and the record show was actually only one EMT record, were not considered by the expert that the trial court must have believed that the expert did not meet the sufficient facts or data prong of Rule 702A. That's how the Court of Appeals read it. And I think essentially the Court of Appeals is saying that that is not what our cases require and that is not what Rule 702A requires. And perhaps on, on that, they were reviewing for an error of law. In and the
0: error of law would be what?
5: the the interpretation of the requirement of sufficient facts or data under Rule 702A. To the extent, again, it's not super clear, frankly, what the the reasoning of the Superior Court, why not seeing these two documents would render an expert unable to testify, and why that's not sufficient facts or data. But Rule 702A does not require experts to review all available information just sufficient facts or data to support their opinions. That's what the rule itself says. And obviously, the General Assembly is perfectly capable if they want to say that an expert should review all pertinent information to say so, because that is what Rule 9 j says. And in fact, in 702, there are specific requirements concerning expert witness testimony. But there is nothing in the law that says that an expert must review all medical records or all records of any kind, I mean, the, 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 the notes we're talking about from the widow were her handwritten personal account of what happened that evening. And I think that that would be an unusual thing, I think, for an expert to, to, to um, consider in their opinion. And certainly, it's valid grounds for cross-examination, which is what the Court of Appeals held. But I, the Court of Appeals either concluded that it was an abuse of discretion to exclude an expert based on the failure to review two specific documents, or that the court misinterpreted um, Rule 702A. But either way, it gets to the same place that the purpose, under McGrady and under Howerton and all of the cases, the purpose of review of um, the, the pre-suit. Review of, of a, I'm sorry, the pretrial review or um, test consideration by the trial court of the admission of, tes- of expert testimony is whether or not the testimony is reliable. And of course, this court in McGrady set out a number of factors that the court can consider. Those factors I don't think many of us believe apply particularly well in the medical malpractice case, but the, in medical malpractice cases. But the court did point out that you can look to precedent. And I, I'm aware of no precedent, and none has been cited to this court, that where an expert doesn't consider two isolated pieces of paper, that um, it, this, that expert is not qualified to testify. And of course, that is would be an impossible standard to meet. Because you can always find something that an expert did not review. And that's not the basis for an exclusion, not the way that Rule 702A has been interpreted by the Court of Appeals or by the federal courts. Sufficient facts or data means sufficient facts or data to support the opinion given. If there's other information that the expert should have, could consider, and the other side believes it should have been considered, that is right for cross-examination. But it's not the basis for excluding expert testimony, which appears to have been the basis here, is that the, these two documents, and certain other unidentified documents were not considered. So, um, unless there are other other questions, I will just say, you know, in conclusion, we have a plaintiff's counsel here and a plaintiff here that on Rule 9j, endeavored to find an expert that would support the allegations of the complaint and reasonably believe that they did find one. It's set out in the sworn testimony Affidavit testimony of the Rule 9J expert. That re- belief was reasonable, and just because the expert, for whatever reason, later did not testify, he was willing to change his mind, willing to testify about the nurses at Harnett Health. That doesn't change the reasonable belief at the time of the complaint is filed, <clears throat> which is the standard under Moore versus Proper. On Rule 702, there, this is not one of the close cases. This was an expert that was fully acquainted with the applicable standard of care, and there is no evidence in the record to the contrary. He worked hard to understand the, the standard of care in the community, testified about the reasons. It was not a surprise to anyone about the basis for his belief in the applicable standard of care. And he did review and testified that he had reviewed the kind of information he reviews in forensic files, which are the medical records at issue. And that anyone that practices it either in the medical malpractice or the personal injury area knows this. That, that is what experts look at: is the medical records. He testified in his deposition that my objective is to is to look at the records in an objective fashion, and that's what he did. Thank you, Your Honors.
1: Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal.
2: May it please the court. In response to the arguments from Applee regarding Rule 9J and what it requires, I'm going to read the plain language of Rule 9J. And what it requires is that a, certif- a complaint shall be dismissed unless the plaintiff includes in the complaint A certification that the medical care and all medical records pertaining to the alleged negligence that are available to the plaintiff after reasonable inquiry have been reviewed by a person who is reasonably expected to qualify as an expert witness under Rule 702 of the Rules of Evidence and who is willing to testify that the medical care did not comply with the applicable standard of care. Per its plain language, those are two distinct components and the reasonable expectation requirement does not attach to the willingness to testify. In in response to the argument regarding Dr. Lair's affidavit that we received prior to his deposition, this goes back to the, the in, In these cases, we have the opportunity to depose expert witnesses so that we can determine what their opinions are. In this case, for example, we received an affidavit. In the course of the deposition, one of the goals of the deposition was to explore what that affidavit meant and who it was referring to when it referred to defendants. And we learned in that deposition that while it generally referred to defendants and included the three different defendants, when, it, when the affidavit concerned the actual opinions that this expert had, he had none and had never had none as to, as to Harnett Health. That was learned in the deposition. That information, according to this expert, was also conveyed to the plaintiff's attorney before he filed... The complaint that he had never that this expert had never had any opinions. There is no ambiguity.
0: Excuse me a second. You just said that this was communicated to the plaintiff's attorney. What, what in the record says that?
2: In Dr. Lair's deposition testimony, um, and the transcript has been uh, uploaded to the to the right. file. And, I mean, and we,
0: we, we've got it. I'm just looking for where it is.
2: It's. I do not have the page number, Your Honor. But he testified that he had had telephone conversations with the plaintiff's attorney prior to the filing of the complaint in which he'd given all his opinions and that those opinions only related to the co-defendant Dr. Reyna. I see that my time is up. Um, In conclusion, we respectfully request first that this court determine that the trial court erred in denying our Rule 9j motion to dismiss. And two, we request that this court determine that the Court of Appeals improperly use the Abuse of Discretion Standard. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Counsel.